Well, good morning. It is a uh, privilege to be able to be with you here again this morning, even though we're not able to uh, gather physically. Uh, uh, to be here with you virtually is, is certainly a privilege. And I want to invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 8. So it's Deuteronomy chapter 8. We're going to be looking this morning at verses 2 through 3. And I definitely want to encourage you to follow along in your Bibles as we go. We're going to be looking at a few different portions of chapter 8. Now, as you're making your way to our text this morning, I want to draw to your mind something that's rather obvious. And the times that we're in now has made this all the more obvious, and that's that trials and tribulations are part of the human experience. They're part of the human experience. They're part of life in a fallen world. In fact, Jesus tells us in John chapter 16, verse 33, that in the world you will have tribulation. Now, of course, it doesn't end there. He goes on in the second half of that verse to tell us to take heart, for he has overcome the world. But the fact of the matter is, while we are here, while we're waiting for him to return in glory and make all things new, we're going to have trials. We're going to have hardships. We're going to suffer. And even now, many of us are suffering. Many of have lost jobs. Maybe we've lost businesses. Maybe we've gotten sick and uh, we lost our degree of health or vitality to one degree or another. Maybe our finances have suffered. Maybe we've lost loved ones. I think one of the things that we've all suffered from, from one degree to another, is the loss of human contact. And certainly the loss of being able to gather together physically as the body of Christ in one another's presence. Now, we're certainly thankful for technology and the fact that we can do a lot of these things virtually, but they are in no way, shape, or form a substitute for the gathering together of the saints physically. We're meant to be together with one another. And we long for that day. And it seems things are moving in that direction for sure uh, when we'll be able to gather together and worship the Lord in each other's presence. And even though for a time it may look a little differently than it did before, and it's very easy for us in the midst of a trial to find ourselves falling into a state of despair. It's very easy for us to start to ask questions and wonder what God is doing. We begin to wonder why he's allowed such things to happen. And very often the answers aren't apparent. Moses tells us later on in the book of Deuteronomy that the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever. So the fact of the matter is, we may never know. But we do know what he's revealed. So then the question is, what has he revealed to us to know? Well, he's revealed that he uses trials and tribulations ultimately for our good and for his glory. That all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And very often we have to remind ourselves what Jesus says in the second half of John 16.33, that we're to take heart, which means that we're to take courage, for he has overcome the world. That means that whatever it is that we're going through, even right now, it's not going to be this way forever. You see, Christ has already triumphed over the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. And we're to wait patiently for him until he comes again. But while we're here, while we wait, trials and tribulations are something that we're all going to have to contend with. 
And one of the ways that we do that is we realize that God uses these things to sanctify us. He uses these things to grow us into the likeness of Christ. You see, sometimes, as we're going to see in our passage this morning, God allows us to go through trials because there's something about us, something about our character, something about what we believe, something about the way that we're living our lives, something about the condition of our hearts that he wants to draw out of us in order that he might change us, in order that he might make us like Jesus. And as we open up God's word this morning, we're going to see that God had a very specific purpose in bringing his people through the wilderness between Egypt and Canaan. And as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, that these things happened to them as an example for us, written down for our instruction. They're here for us to learn from. So let's open up God's word together. Let's examine these lessons that he was teaching Israel in the wilderness. And let's see if we can glean some truth that we can apply to our lives today. Again, this is Deuteronomy chapter 8, verses 2 through 3. And the word of the Lord says, You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man by, lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the gift of your word. It is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. And I do pray that your Holy Spirit would come and minister to us this morning, that he would help us to understand what it is that you've written down for us and that he would help us to apply it faithfully to our lives. In Christ's name I pray, and for his glory. Amen. Now, as we look at our text this morning, we see that Israel is at the end of their wilderness wanderings. And Moses is addressing this congregation for a final time in a series of sermons. And early on in the chapters of Deuteronomy, he's recounting these previous decades. And here's what he says, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness. Now, by itself, we really don't get the gravity of what Moses is saying here. What he's telling them is to remember with fondness. He's telling them to remember with gratitude and with thanksgiving. If we were to look back at Deuteronomy chapter 1 and verse 30, 31, we'd see this. It says, God carried Israel in the wilderness as a man carries his son. Think about how tender that is. Think about how affectionate that is. How gracious it is. So Moses is telling them to remember here with gratitude. Remember with appreciation. Now, when you think about something with fondness and gratitude and thanksgiving, the world wilderness probably isn't the first thing that comes to mind. When we think about remembering something with fondness and thanksgiving and gratitude, usually we think of things like problem-free or no suffering or pain-free. That's definitely not what we're getting here. He's telling Israel to remember the trial of the wilderness with fondness. And make no mistake, the wilderness certainly was a trial. In fact, look at how it's described here in verse 15. It says, He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't sound like something we'd look back on with fondness. 
And keep in mind that this trial that Israel was going through, it didn't last for just a few days. It didn't last for a few months. It was 40 years. Now, 40 years is a really long time. For some of us, that's practically our entire lifetime. I'm 46 years old, so that means between the age of 6 and now is 40 years. It's practically my entire life. And again, he tells them to remember this time with fondness. He tells them to remember this time with thanksgiving and with gratitude. Because even though they were going through a trial, and a very long one, God was faithful to his people the entire time. He provided for their every need. Now, the Israelites, on the other hand, they did nothing but complain. They started complaining from the moment they left Egypt. In fact, the complaining started at the moment they reached the Red Sea. God, he brings them to the shore and they look back and they see the Egyptian army coming down on them and pursuing them. And here's what they say. Is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? Why have you dealt with us in this way, bringing us out of Egypt? Is this not the word that we spoke to you in Egypt, saying, Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians, for it would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Now, think about that for a moment. Back in Egypt, God's people were slaves. They were in bondage. They had forgotten all about their God and the promises that he had made to their fathers. You see, in their hearts, they desired complacency. They desired comfort more than they desired God himself. But God had made a promise to their fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God is faithful to keep his promises. So what does the Lord do? Just when all hope is lost, he delivers them for the Egyptians and brings them safely through the waters. We see God's faithfulness again when the Israelites come to Marah. They had gone three days without water and they were thirsty. They found some water, but then they couldn't drink it because the water was bitter. So what did they do? They complained to the Lord. And then God showed Moses a log and, and he told Moses, Moses to throw the log into the water and then the water became sweet and then they drank. And from there, they set out to Elam. And in Elam, they find springs of water in palm trees and they camp out there for a while. Then they set out again, and about, it's been about two and a half months since they left Egypt. And they start grumbling again. And here's what they say. Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. So what does the Lord do in response? He sends manna from heaven. And they're fed day by day by day by the hand of the Lord. And then they become thirsty again. And at this point, Moses has just about had it with them. He cries out to the Lord, and the Lord tells him, Go out to this rock at Horeb, and there you'll see me standing on the rock. And then he tells Moses to strike the rock, and water will come out. And that's exactly what happens. Water comes gushing out of the rock. Now, we all know, looking back from our perspective as, as Christians living under the new covenant, that this is all pointing to something greater. We know that the manna, the bread that God sent from heaven to feed the Israelites and sustain their life, is really the bread of life, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the rock whom Moses struck, the rock that the Lord is standing on, it's a type of Christ who is stricken for our sake and gives us living water that if we drink of it, we'll never die. 
So this is all pointing to something much, much greater. Greater provision. Greater promises. And the point of all this is that time and time again, God demonstrates his love and his faithfulness to his people by providing for their needs in ways that only he can. Now, at this point in their journey, he tells them to remember. He tells them to look back on the last 40 years and see how God faithfully provided for them time after time after time. And then he tells them why. He tells them what this journey through the wilderness has been all about. He writes, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, that's what the wilderness is for. It's to humble you. It's to test you so that you can see what is in your heart. And it's to teach you, to teach us, to humble us, to test us, to teach us. And that's what we're going to spend the remainder of our time here this morning looking at. So the first thing we see is that when God leads you into the wilderness, it's so that he might humble you. Look with me again at the first part of verse 2. It says, And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you. So, why would God lead you into the wilderness to humble you? You see, the fact of the matter is, we are, we are just, we're just as fickle as the Israelites. It's very easy, especially when things are going well for us, to get complacent. We become self-sufficient. We tend to rely on ourselves. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6 say this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your path straight. You see, a lot of times we do the exact opposite. We do lean on our own understanding and we don't acknowledge the Lord. We try and make our path straight ourselves. And the problem is, most of the time, we're not even aware that this is happening. That's until the heat gets turned up and we realize things are more than we can handle. And you see, that's what the wilderness does. Very often, when we become complacent, God puts us into situations where we have no other choice but to depend on him. And we see that very apparently with everything that's going on right now. Now think about the situation that the Israelites were in. Back in Egypt, they had food. They had water. They had shelter. They had clothing. They had protection from their enemies. Granted, they were slaves, but aside from that, they had pretty much everything that they could have needed or wanted. And now God shows up and he delivers them from bondage. He's fulfilling the promises that he had made to their fathers. And he leads them out into the wilderness and toward the promised land. And now what were their circumstances like? Think about that for a moment. Put yourself in their place. They went from a situation where basically all of their needs were met and now they're in the wilderness. And if God doesn't give them water, they die. If God doesn't give them food, they die. If God doesn't protect them from the Amalekites that are attacking them, they die. He's pressing into the forefronts of their minds moment by moment, second by second, 
hour by hour their need for God. And that's very humbling. He put them into a state of childlike dependence. Now, when I say that, I know that most of you are immediately thinking about something that Jesus said to his disciples. He said something very uh, similar. If you remember the situation, the people, the disciples, or people were bringing their children to Jesus and, and they wanted Jesus to touch them and bless them and the disciples are rebuking them and telling them to get back. And how does Jesus respond? Luke chapter 18, verses 16 and 17 say, But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. You see, God intends for us to depend on him. Why? Because left to our own devices, we really have no earthly idea what is good for us. And the problem is we think we do. You see, by nature, we are very prideful people. And there's nothing more destructive and alienating from God than pride and self-sufficiency. In fact, pride and self-sufficiency are the pathway to destruction. After all, pride is the very thing that Satan himself will be judged for. Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 6, and now this is talking about the qualifications for elders, but it's applicable to us all. It says, and not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. You see, when we are full of things like pride and conceit, we're actually moving further and further away from God and closer and closer toward the person we're becoming like, which is Satan. That's why pride and self-sufficiency are so destructive. And we can so easily deceive ourselves. It's so easy for us to think that we have things under control. And and what happens then is that God leads us into the wilderness. He uses trials and tribulations and suffering. And he uses these things to humble us. He uses them to make us dependent like children. Children who are dependent on the love and kindness of their parents to provide for their every need. That's the kind of fatherly love and kindness that God showed to Israel. And it's the same fatherly love and kindness that he shows to us. So if you really think about it, God brings us through a trial and it's one of the ways that, it's one of the most life-giving things that God can do because he gets us off the path of pride and self-sufficiency and he causes us to depend on him. But even then, we have a very hard time understanding our own hearts. So another reason God leads us into the wilderness, it's so that he might test you to know what's in your heart. Look with me again at verse 2. It says that God led you into the wilderness these 40 years that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. Now, the obvious question is, doesn't God already know what's in our hearts? Of course he does. What's important to notice here is that the testing was not for God's benefit. It was for theirs. It was for hours. If you were to ask these roughly two million Israelites if they love the Lord their God with all their heart and all their mind and all their soul and all their strength, what do you think they'd say? Of course, they'd all say yes. Just like if I asked everyone watching this that if you love Jesus, I guarantee the majority would say yes. The problem is we just don't realize how fragile, how immature, 
how conditioned on circumstances that love and affection can be. And that's why sometimes God uses trials to test us so that we can really see what's going on on the inside. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying. I am not saying that if you're going through a trial, it's because you don't love Jesus. That's ridiculous. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is this. Maybe, just maybe, if you're going through a trial, it's because something else has captivated your heart and your love for that thing is ruling your life. The truth of the matter is this. Whatever rules your heart rules your life. And if it's not God, it's something else. You see, that's why our practical theology is so important. And what I mean by practical theology is this. It's the way that we live our lives day by day before the Lord. You see, we all have two theologies. On the one hand, we have our confessional theology. That's what we say we believe. On the other hand, we have our practical theology, and that's expressed in the way that we live our lives. And the truth is, our practical theology is a way better indicator of what we really believe than our confessional theology. For example, how we respond in the face of a trial is a far better indicator of what we believe than what we say with our mouths. And this is an area that's really, really easy for us to deceive ourselves because a lot of us have really good confessional theology. But that's exactly why God uses trials. He uses them to show us what's going on on the inside. You see, when we're faced with a trial, when we're put under pressure, and that's how that word trial is so often used in the New Testament. It's used to describe a pressure-filled circumstance. It's a situation where the pressure is building. And God uses these pressure-filled circumstances to show us what's really inside of us. Now, when you think about something that's under pressure, what happens? For example, if I were to take a bottle of carbonated water and shake it, what would happen? You see, the carbonation, they would cause pressure to build. And then when I twist off the cap, the water would spray everywhere. But what if I took a bottle of plain water and did the same thing? I shook it up and opened it. What would happen? Nothing. What's the difference? The difference is what's on the inside. You see, from the outside, those two bottles look exactly the same, but it's what's on the inside that what makes the difference. What's on the inside of the bottle of carbonated water when put under pressure, is what causes it to explode. You see, it's the same thing with our hearts. We all have times in our lives where we're put under pressure, and then we're surprised by what comes out. We're put under pressure, and we say something or do something, and then moments later, we're like, where did that come from? I don't know about you, but that certainly has happened to me. Well, the place it came from was your heart. Jesus tells us that out of the heart, the mouth speaks. What I want you to realize is, by allowing these situations to happen, by allowing what's on the inside to come out, God is being gracious toward you and showing you that he loves you. Why do I say that? Look with me back at chapter 8 and verse 5. It says, Thus you are to know in your heart that the Lord your God was disciplining you just as a man disciplines his son." So part of the grace of God in leading you into the wilderness is to create an environment where you get squeezed so that what's really on the inside comes out and you can deal with it. And yes, when it comes out, it can be difficult. 
It can be painful. But now that it's exposed, we can deal with it and we can be changed. That's exactly what the author of Hebrews was getting at when he writes in chapter 12, verse 11. It says, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the piece of fruit of righteousness. You see, God wants us to deal with the idols of our heart. He wants us to put to death anything that has captivated our hearts other than himself. Why? Because he knows that our hearts set on anything but him will lead to our destruction. Look with me at chapter 8, starting in verse 11. It says, Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinances and his statutes, which I am commending you today. Otherwise, when you have eaten and are satisfied and have built good houses and lived in them, and when your, he- when your herds and your flocks multiply, and your silver and gold multiply, and all that you have multiplies, then your heart will become proud, and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He led you through the great and terrible wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water. He brought water for you out of the rock of flint, In the wilderness he fed you manna, which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and that he might test you to do good for you in the end. The testing of the Lord is good for you in the end. Otherwise, you may say in your heart, my power and the strength of my hand made me this wealth. But you shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth, that he may confirm his covenant which he swore to your fathers as it is this day. It shall come out if you ever forget the Lord, come about if you ever forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them. I testify against you today that you will surely perish. Now, think about the grace of God in not allowing you to remain where you are. You see, when our hearts are captivated by other things, by full bellies, by wealth and comfort, by pride and self-sufficiency, When we chase after these things and serve them and worship them, we're headed for destruction. Because they lead us away from the Lord. They lead us away from the one who created us. They lead us away from the one who saves us. They lead us away from the one who is worthy of our love and our affection and our adoration and our obedience. They lead us away from the one who is worthy of all honor and all praise and all glory. So the fact that God won't leave us to these idols that he puts us in these pressure-filled situations to test us and draw out the things that have captivated our hearts so we can deal with them. That means that God loves us, that he cares for us, that he counts us as sons and not illegitimate children. So how do we know if something else has captivated our hearts? Well, we can know by the way we respond to pressure-filled situations. You see, when the heat gets turned up, when we come home from work and we're tired and dinner's not ready and our kids are acting crazy and their homework isn't done and all we want to do is plop down on the couch and relax, speaking from personal experience here, how do we respond? Do we start to feel anger bubble up to the surface? Do our feelings in that moment cause us to lash out and say unkind words to our spouses or to our kids? 
How do we respond when we're on social media and we see someone post something from a political perspective that we don't agree with? How do we respond when we offer our opinion on something and no one seems to want to listen to what we have to say? How do we respond when our teenage son or daughter acts out in rebellion and defies us? And I'm not just talking about responding outwardly. I'm also talking about inwardly. You see, many of us, we've gotten good at controlling our behavior. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. A fruit of the Spirit is self-control. We're supposed to control ourselves. But the Christian life isn't about just being able to control our behavior. You see, our sanctification is not just learning about how to stop certain behaviors. It's about renewing our minds. And when we renew our minds, God works on our hearts and we desire to become more like him. Let me demonstrate what I mean. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. So Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look quickly at verses 22 through 33. So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 22 through 32. Here's what it says. That, in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in, in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and put on the new self, which is the likeness of God, has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one, of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give opportunity to the devil. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ has forgiven you. So according to this passage, when is a liar no longer a liar? Is it when he stops lying? No, it's when he speaks the truth with his neighbor. He's putting off the lying, he's renewing his mind, and he's putting on the new self. When is a thief no longer a thief? Is it when he stops stealing? No, it's when he labors, performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with the one who has need. And this is the result of a renewed mind. It's the result of putting on the new self, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And then lastly, it says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. As God in Christ forgave you. Think about that. How does that change how you look at forgiveness when you think of it that way? As God in Christ forgave you. How does that make you feel about the unforgiveness you might be holding towards someone else? Now, I realize that if you're here today and you're listening to this and you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, what I'm saying about forgiveness not, might not be making a whole lot of sense. But what I want you to realize that is this. Our motivation for, to forgive others as Christians 
comes from a heart that knows what it means to be forgiven much. And when we recognize that, when we recognize that our sins have been forgiven, our sins which deserve death, our sins for which Christ stood in our place, that he was our substitute, that he died the death that we deserve to die so that we could walk in the newness of life, when we understand that, we can't help but forgive others when they sin against us. And if you want to know what that's like, if you want to know what it's like to be forgiven of your sins, to know what, that no matter what you have done in this life, if you confess your sins, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. If you want to know what that's like, ask him to forgive you right now, right where you're sitting. Call out to him right now because the fact is none of us are guaranteed another moment, let alone tomorrow. Don't let another moment go by where you haven't had the experience of having your sins forgiven that experience that's available through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, so far that we've seen that God, he leads us into the wilderness so that he might humble us. He does it so that he might test us to know what's in our hearts. And finally, so that he might teach us. Look with me at verse 3. It says, He humbled you and let you be hungry and fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but this really challenges my view of who a loving God is, doesn't it? I mean, when you think of a loving God, do you think of a, God as a, a loving God as a father who would let his children go hungry? Well, the answer is yes, because that's, there's something bigger, there's something more valuable, there's something more precious that he's after. Look at what it says. And fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. So what that means is that God let them go hungry and then fed them in a way that they had never been fed before. He fed them in a way that couldn't be explained by anything in the natural realm. It had to be from God. It was obvious. The dew comes down, and then the dew lifts, and then there's manna. Every single day. And there's no other way to explain it other than that God provided it. And why did he do this? It says that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. So God was teaching them, and now us, that our life, our existence, our being, our meaning, both in this life and in the life to come, it doesn't come by way of physical stuff, but by the very word of God. Really, by the person of God. Because the word of God is a person. The Lord Jesus Christ. The same Lord who is the bread of life. He's the true manna come from heaven. You see, if you're going to learn, if we're going to learn, we have to realize that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That means seeing God for who he truly is. That he is the Almighty. He's our creator. And if you're trusting in Jesus, he's your savior, your provider, your sustainer, your very bread of life itself. That's who he is. And that's what God brings you into the wilderness to teach you. Because all too often, our life, our sense of worth and of meaning, it's based on worldly things. Maybe very often it's based on our position at work or our social status or, or even how we appear here to everyone at church. 
We all have to look like we have it all together, right? No. (laughs) See, God uses trials to teach us that our life, our identity, our sense of worth and value is not found in any of those things, but in Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 4 say this, Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. That's what the wilderness teaches us. It humbles us. It strips us down and exposes our hearts. And God uses it to redirect the course of our lives and to conform us into the likeness of Jesus Christ. Because he's the one it's really all about. So I want you to ask yourself a few questions this morning as we begin to wrap up. I want you to ask yourself, what is God showing me during this time in the wilderness? We've all been through a wilderness over these last few months. What is it that God is showing you? Is there any area of your life where you need to humble yourself? Areas where you've been relying on yourself rather than on God's provision? Is there anything that's captivated your heart that you may need God to help you to change? That you may need to repent and renew your mind and put off the old self and put on the new? And finally, am I finding my identity and my sense of worth and of value in stuff, in earthly things, rather than in the Lord? Am I satisfied and content in whatever circumstances I find myself because Christ is the one who gives me strength? I want to challenge you and me to ask ourselves these questions as we're dealing with various things that are happening, especially now. As we begin to wrap up, I want you to see that ultimately the Israelites who God led out of Egypt failed the test of the wilderness. Everyone except two, Joshua and Caleb. The rest of that generation died along the way and never made it to the promised land. But you know, they weren't the first son of God to be led into the wilderness to be tested, nor will they be the last. You see, God is faithful to keep his promises. And some 1,400 years after the events recorded in Deuteronomy, God would lead another son into the wilderness to be tested. And for 40 days and 40 nights, he went without food. And in this state of weariness, in this state of physical exhaustion, so much so that after it was over, angels came and ministered to him. In this state of weakness, in this state of hunger, in this state of vulnerability, Satan came to him and tempted him with the very thing that his body needed most at that moment. Food. Bread. Satan said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. Now, how did Jesus respond to this temptation? How did he respond to the seeds of doubt that Satan was attempting to sow in his heart just like he did to the first Adam? Did he respond like the first Adam? Did he respond like the Israelites who grumbled and complained every time they got hungry? No. You see, both of them failed the test, but not Jesus. He responded with the truth of the very words that he himself spoke to them some 1,400 years earlier, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And what I want you to realize is this. If you're putting your trust in him, 
If you're trusting in Jesus Christ to save you, the fact that he passed the test is given to you. It's imputed to you. It's as if you did it. He lived the life that we could never live and died the death that we deserve to die so that in him we can have eternal life. So that we could live in the presence of God and in the glory of his kingdom forever and ever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, as we think about the various trials and tribulations that we all have faced and that many of us are facing now. We thank you that we know that ultimately these things are being used for our good and for your glory. Lord, I do pray that you would help us by the power of your Holy Spirit to see that truth, that we would not despair, that we would keep our eyes fixed on Christ, who is the captain and shepherd of our souls, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We ask you that you would help us to do these things today. In Jesus' name and for his glory, I pray. Amen.